I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Jonathan Oberlander, a professor of social medicine and of health policy and management at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Professor Oberlander has written a perspective article on the future of Obamacare. Professor Oberlander, as you note in your article, in the short term, much of the fate of health care reform rests with the states in terms both of setting up or declining to set up health insurance exchanges and of expanding or refusing to expand Medicaid. Have there been any visible shifts since the election in what the state-by-state patchwork might look like? We have had a little bit of clarity as states have had to come off the fence uh, in response both to the election and to the Supreme Court ruling upholding the Affordable Care Act's constitutionality. We now know that the Affordable Care Act is going to move forward, and so states are responding to that new reality. Uh, To date, and this is very much a moving picture, there are 18 states that have announced they're going to set up their own exchanges 17 that have said they refuse to set up an exchange and will default to a federal exchange. Another, about a half a dozen that are going to partner with the federal government, and around 10 that still haven't decided what to do. Uh, And so I think what you see right now is a very divided picture. Uh, But what is clear is that the federal government is going to be operating in whole or part exchanges in uh, at least about half the states. And I think if you went back to the adoption of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, that is indeed a surprise. With regard to federal exchanges, opponents of the Affordable Care Act have seized on a feature of the law as it's written and are arguing that there's no provision for subsidies for purchasing insurance coverage through a federal exchange as opposed to a state exchange. Is that claim likely to go anywhere? I have spent a good part of my life watching law and order, uh, but despite that, I am not uh, particularly adept at legal matters. So I will defer to those who uh, really know uh, the uh, legal issues at hand here. My my understanding from talking with folks and and reading uh, people like Tim Jost at Washington and Lee who have written about this is the odds are that is not likely to go very far. Uh, It is clear that Congress intended for subsidies to be available in federal exchanges. Otherwise, the law just wouldn't make any sense at all. So this is uh, essentially a drafting error. Uh, On the other hand, we have had already in this process some surprises in the legal arena, and so I think it's hard to predict, at least for me decisively, what's going to happen. Subsidies aside, what do you think the difference will ultimately be from a consumer's point of view between a state-run exchange and a federal exchange? I think it's an interesting question because we don't really know the answer. We don't know what these are going to look like yet. Uh, We have, of course, a a very uh, real and successful model of this up in Massachusetts. Uh, But what other state exchanges are going to look like and what the federal exchange is going to look like uh, and what the federal state partner exchanges are going to look like, I think uh, those are all quite hazy pictures. And uh, from a, a perspective of, uh, you know, a resident, say, in North Carolina, uh, and we are going to do a partnership exchange, what what the difference is going to be substantially between doing a partnership exchange and the state doing its own exchange is not clear. In theory, if you have states like Massachusetts that are enthused about this and have maximum uh, input in designing their own exchanges and running their own exchanges, that would be good in terms of getting an exchange that would fit the needs of the state. Uh, but since that's not going to happen in a lot of states, 
it's not clear what that's going to produce. And it may be uh, if the choice is between states that are really unenthusiastic about setting up an exchange and a federal exchange, it may be from a consumer perspective that, in fact, a federal exchange is a, is a better deal. But we don't know the particulars of key questions about a federal exchange and how aggressive or not it's going to be in its relationship with insurance companies and what the governance is going to look like. And for all these exchanges, a a, a vital question, which is how successful are they going to be in enrolling eligible individuals? Massachusetts was quite successful in doing that. But in Massachusetts, you had a bipartisan coalition behind the law. And in many states, we don't have that. And so this question of enrollment, I think, is one you're going to hear a lot about in the next year. Looking beyond exchanges, you also note in your article that beginning in 2017, states will be eligible for innovation waivers to craft their own reform plans within federal guidelines. Is that going to be a wild card in all this? What do you think the states might do? I think it is a very important wild card. It's important to remember, if we go back to 1965 when we passed Medicare, Medicaid was part of that original legislation, and it got very little attention at the time. I think Lyndon Johnson uh, barely referred to it in his speech marking the enactment of the of the law. Uh, and likewise, there may be some sleepers contained in this rather complex uh, law that is the Affordable Care Act. And certainly, the innovation waivers are a, a very important uh, provision in the law. And what it means come 2017, we could have states go in theoretically very different directions. You could have states going in the direction of Vermont, uh, at least theoretically, and doing something closer to single payer or maybe bringing back a public option, at least in their state. Uh, You could have states doing something in in the other direction and maybe trying to promote uh, a more uh, high deductible kind of plan. Uh, There are some constraints in the law. Uh, What the law says is that for a state to have an innovation waiver approved, the state has to cover just as many people at least, as it would be covered under the Affordable Care Act, and that that coverage that the state is proposing has to be at least as comprehensive and at least as affordable. Now, that's what the law says. Uh, What is interesting to speculate about, at least uh, in the closing days of 2012, is what would happen if you have a president in 2017, say, Marco Rubio, who is not predisposed to the Affordable Care Act? Would they use this provision to try to weaken the law? Uh, Would they try to give states wider latitude than really was intended in the Affordable Care Act? And would that then set off yet another uh, chain reaction of lawsuits and legal battles? I think the other question about the innovation waivers is whether they're going to be moved forward. Um, There's still going to be pyrotechnics in Congress about the Affordable Care Act, although there's uh, no chance it's going to be repealed in the next four years. But there was talk in the last Congress, and uh, with support of the Obama administration, about moving forward those waivers uh, as, as a way of giving states more flexibility sooner. And I wonder if that's going to come back to the discussion. To go back for a moment to Medicaid and possible expansion, A new Kaiser Family Foundation report indicates that if all states expanded their Medicaid programs, state Medicaid spending would increase by $76 billion over 10 years. And if no state expanded its program, Medicaid spending would still increase by $68 billion over those 10 years. So is state resistance to the expansion all about money? 
I think that study, which was uh, done with researchers from the Urban Institute, shows that state resistance is primarily not about the money, in fact. Uh, this is about ideology, and uh, this is about a battle over health care reform and the implementation of Obamacare and what the uh, what healthcare policy should look like and what our welfare state should look like. The fact of the matter is, this is a tremendous deal for states. This is not a deal that comes along very often where the federal government agrees at the beginning to pay all the costs of this sort of expansion and uh, in perpetuity agrees to pay 90%. And it is absolutely a tremendous bargain for the states, a much better bargain than states get right now in their Medicaid programs. And so simply from a um, standpoint of attractiveness, uh, from a state perspective, there's no question that this is a great deal. There is a moral case for expanding Medicaid in the states. Uh, We know from studies in the New England Journal and elsewhere that Medicaid saves lives and that states that have expansive Medicaid programs have lower mortality rates for those populations. So there's a strong moral case for doing this. There's a business case uh, for the healthcare industry because hospitals cannot opt out of the Medicare reductions that are coming their way. Uh, They're also faced with the prospect of reduced payments for disproportionate share for seeing low-income patients. Those are all federally determined. So those are coming. And if they don't have the Medicaid expansion to counteract that and provide them with more insured beneficiaries, then healthcare reform is not going to be as good a bargain for them. And that's why, at least in some states, you'll see hospitals pushing their governors and legislatures to accept this. And there's also an economic case for this, as John Gruber and others have pointed out, there's a stimulative effect. When we expand Medicaid to low-income folks, it gives them more money to spend on other things, and that provides stimulus to the economy. So I think that the case is overwhelming that this is in the interest of states to do in many ways, and the the resistance to the Medicaid expansion is really an ideological resistance uh, about health care reform and doesn't, I think, at the end of the day, have as much to do with money. So do you predict that in a few years, despite that resistance, most states will have expanded Medicaid rather than leave those federal dollars on the table? I do think most states um, will take it up. But the question question is, how many? Uh, Not all states are created equally in terms of size. And already we have had uh, the governors of Texas and Florida uh, prior to the election say that they're going to turn down the expansion a substantial chunk of the uninsured uh, in the United States live in Texas and Florida. Even if it was only those states that refused, uh, you would have a a lot of people not covered. And um, those folks, by the way, who are low income and are not covered by the Medicaid expansion will not, uh, for the most part, be eligible to go in the exchanges with subsidies because of the way the law was written. So they're going to remain uninsured. And I think the issue is how many states are going to are going to join places like Texas. Now, Governor Scott in Florida has subsequently said he's open to negotiation, and we'll see what that means for Medicaid. But if we take a step back to this question of how many states have said no to the exchange, uh, we've already had 17 states that have given a no answer, and, and there may be more in the offing. So I am sure that a handful of states are going to say no to Medicaid. Um, the question is, does it become more than a handful? And what are the size of those states? And how does that change over time? Uh, Because a decision that the state makes on this in 2013 may be different 
than 2015. And I do, I do think over time we will see more and more states uh, join this, but I am very concerned that we're not going to get as many states as we need at the beginning of this program. The, the final point I'll make about this is it's not, or so it appears, an all-or-nothing choice for states. Uh, it appears that with the flexibility of the Supreme Court ruling, which is somewhat ambiguous on this, states could scale up the Medicaid expansion partially rather than going all the way to 138% of the poverty level. And I think the Obama administration has really tried to uh, woo the states and try to be flexible and get them in. So it may be that we see uh, many, quote-unquote, partial expansions. Through all this, you note that the Affordable Care Act is still not terribly popular, and in part that's because it was never marketed very well, whereas the opposition was skilled at playing on people's emotions, especially their fears. How do you think the country's mixed feelings about it will affect implementation? If you look at the public opinion on the Affordable Care Act, it essentially has remained unchanged for two years with the country sharply divided and uh, slightly more people having an unfavorable than favorable view of the law. But the Affordable Care Act certainly does not have in its entirety uh, anything like a public mandate. And I think there's a, there's a problem that goes beyond that, which is it's not just that people aren't in favor of the law, it's that they don't understand what's in the law and what's not in the law. And some of the things that they think are in the law actually aren't in it. And uh, this becomes a problem in terms of mobilizing public su- support for the program and for its financing going forward. Uh, it also is a more acute problem in getting eligible folks to sign up. Uh, we have over the next decade, we expect about 30 million uninsured Americans who are going to sign up for this law. But the data that we have from the Kaiser Family Foundation and elsewhere shows that the uninsured don't have a very strong understanding of the benefits that are in the law for them. And here we are with only about 11 months or 10 months to go before the first open enrollment period. And if a good portion of the uninsured don't understand the benefits for them, don't understand Medicaid expansion, don't understand the exchanges, don't understand the subsidies, then we've got a very serious problem. And I think a lot of the attention and energy over the next year from the administration and uh, outside groups is going to go into this question of educating people about the law and um, trying to educate them so they can sign up for benefits that are going to be quite good for them. One sobering fact that we should all have in mind thinking about this issue. And that is there are roughly 7 to 8 million uninsured children in the United States under the age of 18, and around 5 million of them are eligible for Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, and they're not enrolled. Uh, And so we have a record of creating a patchwork health insurance system where a lot of people fall through the cracks and don't sign up for programs that they're eligible. And um, we're going to have to be very determined to improve upon that record in making the Affordable Care Act work. Washington this month is facing the fiscal cliff. What do you think is likely to happen to the Affordable Care Act, to Medicare, to Medicaid in those negotiations? I hope that the Affordable Care Act is going to emerge uh, unscathed from budget negotiations. The, The Affordable Care Act has nothing to do with the budget deficit, hasn't created our debt, and in fact is projected to reduce our deficit over the next decade and even more so 
beyond. And there has been talk in Washington and by uh, other policy analysts of weakening, reducing, or otherwise uh, delaying the subsidies for the uninsured under the Affordable Care Act that are set to begin January 2014. I think that would be a terrible mistake. I think it's extraordinarily poor public policy, and I hope it doesn't happen. Those, those subsidies for people as we sort of climb the income chart into the middle class, they're already quite limited. There are a lot of Americans, even with the subsidies, who are going to be paying a lot for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act and struggling uh, to pay for their medical care. And to, to reduce those subsidies before the law even starts, I think, uh, w- w- would just be an awful idea. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, and, and I hope it doesn't. I think that Medicaid um, will likely also emerge unscathed. And again, um, I, I don't think there's a lot of room um, to cut what's in Medicaid. I think where you will see savings are Medicare, and it's clear the president's opening proposal uh, already has a promise that includes potentially hundreds of billions of dollars in additional Medicare savings. I don't know what will ultimately emerge and whether we will um, uh, stop just short of the fiscal cliff and stay there or jump over the abyss with a, with a grand bargain or simply revisit this come January and beyond, but I think it is inevitable that you will see more additional Medicare savings in any budget deal. And uh, the, the question will be, what kind of savings will there be? There is lots of support in Washington for ideas like raising the Medicare eligibility age, which really are just cost-shifting ideas, not cost-saving ideas. Uh, we could also see efforts to uh, reduce the subsidy that higher-income Medicare beneficiaries get and sort of uh, increase the income-related premiums that they're already paying under Medicare today. I think that's quite likely uh, to happen. What will happen on, on the benefit side, I think, remains unclear. But Medicare will be part of any big budget deal if we do get a budget deal. In that regard, one further specific point. What do you see happening to the sustainable growth rate and to physician reimbursement in Medicare? Well, uh, you know, the sustainable growth rate, the, Me- the Medicare SGR drama has, has become a sort of annual theater um, that that we have at the end of the year, where uh, hanging over the heads of everybody is a double-digit 20, 25, 30 percent, and so on, um, cut in Medicare physician payments. And uh, the AMA and other physician groups mobilize and say this, this can't happen, that this would do terrible things to Medicare, and Congress says this shouldn't happen. And um, meanwhile, um, we wait until the last minute and once in a while until after the last minute, and then we we finally postpone those cuts. And I think that is likely to be the resolution once again. Lots of folks, including originally the Obama administration in 2009, wanted to call an end to the charade and simply change the system and cancel these cuts that we know are not going to happen uh, on the order of $300 billion over the next 10 years. But the problem is we already have a huge deficit that you're trying to fill in, and nobody wants to add $300 billion to the amount of revenues or spending cuts that you're finding, trying to find in Washington right now. And so we get these short-term patches. And uh, I hope that I'm wrong about this, but I think you're going to get another short-term patch, which is good news for physicians uh, in the sense that there will not be um, 
30% or so cuts in um, uh, Medicare fees. Um, The bad news, of course, for them is uh, Medicare payments also are not going up um, at a particularly high rate to physicians. Uh, I do think it's worth taking a step back and noting that if we sort of graded different healthcare groups and of providers and how they fared in healthcare reform and the Affordable Care Act, physicians did fairly well compared to other groups. They didn't take the kind of hit that hospitals are going to take, that insurers are going to take, that pharma took. So uh, uh, physicians did relatively well in the Affordable Care Act, and primary care doctors, of course, will get some additional funds under both Medicare and Medicaid provisions uh, in Obamacare. But uh, I wish this FGR drama was going to end this year, uh, but I think we're going to see another season come next uh, December. Thank you, Professor Oberlander. Thank you so much.